1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it, w- it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of God. One of the greatest aspects of the gospel is that we are more despicable than we could ever think. And yet, at the same time, paradoxically, we are more accepted than we could ever hope for. And with that understanding, I want to lay out what I believe Paul is directing the Corinthian church to do. He's giving them a rebuke at the beginning of a letter. If you remember back to the Galatians series that we did just a few months ago, uh, we saw that Paul didn't even give a thanksgiving to that letter. Their, Their problem of doctrine was so dire that he didn't have anything or didn't waste any time rather to to thank God for them in the letter, though I'm sure he had thanked God before for the Galatians. But here, even though the Corinthian church, as we know from reading the book of Corinth, had so many and great sin issues, Paul still thanks God for them. He still thanks God for the work of grace that's among them, but he immediately begins to address the single most important issue that would rip apart the Corinthian church, which is division. And the division was arising because people were involved in theological posturing. I am of Calvin, and I am of Arminius, and I am of, I'm of Piper, and I am of Keller. This was the sort of activity that they were engaged in, though they didn't use those names. They used other names of the apostles during those days. Um, and the point that Paul is making 
is that you, you all have forgotten that you did not choose which tribe to be brought forth in. One of the wonderful aspects of the, the view of adoption in the New Testament is adopted children have no say in their adoption. They can campaign really hard and, and act very nicely for their potential adoptive parents, but the decision lies upon the adoptive parents to adopt them. And so Paul's using this sort of language to remind the Corinthians, you're boasting of what tribe, what theological tribe you come from, and yet it's very clear from the grace of God, you did not choose God, but he chose you. And so he's appealing to them to end their division, and the way that he does that is not to argue about which apostle they should be following or whether or not they should see themselves as of this pure Christian sect or this pure Christian or theological tribe. He rather reminds them that none of them chose God. And therefore, because none of them chose God, they cannot boast except for in what God has done on their behalf. And so right from the beginning of the Corinthian letter, Paul is addressing problems by bringing them to remember the gospel. That is why a a unique mark of our teaching here, not unique to us, but a, a distinct mark of our teaching at this church, focuses on how does the gospel address the particular issues. It is not hijacking the gospel to sort of make it practical, but rather to understand that because Christ is Lord of all, as we sang this morning, because he's Lord of all, he has the right to speak about all. And he is the answer for the division in the Corinthian church. And I would also say he's the answer for the division in the church today. So one of the, one of the ways that we can reconcile one to another is not by lessening theology. In fact, indeed, our, our wonderful brother, Ray Nethery, is here to, to teach us theology later today, if you're in that class. It's not to lessen theology or, or diminish it as unimportant, claiming to have some sort of a, appreciation for Jesus outside of theology, uh, it, but rather to remind ourselves of what is the core of our faith. What is the central aspect of our theology? Is that God in his infinite mercy has chosen us in Christ. And that is exactly what Paul points them to. He does theology to get them to stop worrying about what sort of factions they're in. And I do believe that, is, that it is a healthy mark of a church for a church to love knowledge. But we have to understand the sort of knowledge which comes from the Holy Spirit and the scriptures, not the sort of knowledge which can be apprehended by the human mind alone. If you're doing theology or you're, you're pursuing God and you understand everything you're learning, then I would submit to you that you are forgetting the, the, the paradox and mystery at the core of the gospel, which is why should God choose such wretched and low sinners to make saints holy ones, as we saw last week during our baptisms. So the point of this passage is to direct the Corinthian church to the pure love of Christ, recognizing that they were chosen by God. And that deep knowledge of being chosen by God reveals something to them, but it not only reveals something to them, it also itself delivers them from expectations. I want to explain all of that as we go today. I want to lay it out in three points. First is that God's wisdom was not present for all time, but it was hidden, and then it was revealed through the death, 
burial, and resurrection of Christ. That is, God had a plan. We talk about it as the phrase, the redemptive unfolding or the redemptive plan of God. God had a mission. God had wisdom. God had a way by which he was going to reconcile the world to himself. And yet for ages it was hidden, and then it was made manifest in Christ. But in being made manifest, the world does not recognize it as wisdom. And so even to this day, it's still a hidden wisdom. It's a secret wisdom, not as we're not allowed to talk about it, but it's secret in that it must be disclosed to the human heart by God himself. The next thing I want to look at is how Paul uh, describes the calling and election of saints. That is to say that God calls sinners to himself and he chooses them. It's a very important understanding throughout the entire scriptures. Election is not a doctrine that is introduced in the New Testament. Just as God chose the Israelites of his own free will, so also he is choosing these Jews and Gentiles to become his new people. God is electing these saints. They do not arrive at the nation of Israel, or they don't arrive at the spiritual Jerusalem of their own. They are called there. They are brought there. And then I want to look at how Paul advocates or commends them to then boast in the Lord himself, to boast in God's work done on their behalf, not to boast in what they themselves think that they've done. So at the beginning, I want to just re- reiterate, Paul is appealing to the Corinthians. They're, they're a church that is being fractured. It's, it's got a, a war going on in which various people are claiming to have been deputized or, or, or become a student of Paul or a student of Apollos and his teachings. And then some other people say, we're the ones who are of Christ we don't even recognize the, the apostles. And, and he rebukes them all. He, he demonstrates that they all are boasting in some sort of heritage that was actually providence. That is to say, well, you know, you are new in the Corinthian church, but I was here when Paul was here. And let me tell you, I remember a lot better than you do. Or I, you say you were here when Paul, I actually was of the Apollos school. And then others who probably traveled there, well, I was in in Israel at the time of our Lord, so, you know, listen to me. This is the sort of faction that they're beginning to engage in, and they're, they're posturing themselves, they're positioning themselves, they're playing theological chess, trying to earn power in the Corinthian church, and Paul writes a letter to rebuke all of them. He says, you all are engaging. By the mere fact that you've engaged in this debate, you're all guilty, even if you aren't the ones who started it. And he then calls them to remember the gospel, to turn away from their boasting and to put their faith and trust in Christ again. And so Paul is basically reminding them of the nature of grace, that it was God's sovereign and free choice. That is to say, God's hand was not forced by human sin in order for him to choose these Corinthians. God lovingly and willingly chose them Without God's sovereign intervention, the Corinthians themselves would despise the cross. He moves right to a description that this problem affected both Jews and Greeks. It's not as if the Jews had an easier time with the gospel. Even though they were party to the covenant, even though the law was theirs by by ethnicity, they did not have a back door or an easier time with Uh, the entrance into the gospel. He says in verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And before you are saved, you are included in the set of all who are perishing. 
I just want you to understand that before you come to faith in Christ, you are included in that set. And before God discloses his wisdom, before God reveals his son to you, you are in that group of people who despise the cross. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. One of the interesting things about this is Paul begins to actually, not, after he reminds them of God's sovereign and free choice, he then quotes Isaiah's prophecy against the Israelites. He, Isaiah prophesies against a time where the nation of Israel is about to go into exile. And he, at this point, Isaiah hears from the Lord that God is going to shame the so-called wisdom of Israel. Interestingly, in that context, it was the wisdom of Israel trusting in her ethnicity over and against, and and the so-called promises of God, which they had twisted for their own purposes, against the threat of being removed as a nation. They had a warning that God would come and, and make siege against Jerusalem, and they took pride saying God would never take away. He promised that this city would last forever, and yet it's very clear from history after the fact that God did that. Paul takes that very same verse that was applying to the destruction of the temple, the first destruction of the temple, and he then applies it to the Corinthian era. And and he's not just talking about the church in Corinth or the, the Romans in Corinth or the Jews in Corinth. He's talking about all of the religious hierarchy of that day. If he was writing about it today, it would be uh, it would be focused on New Ageism, uh, humanism, ecumenism, uh, this notion that all religions are equally valid. These would be the sorts of religions that Paul would be warring against. But in his day, he was warring against two major factions, Judaism that was rejecting the gospel and Greek Hellenism or Greek humanism, a, a system of philosophy of trying to better oneself through the mind. And that's exactly what he takes his aim at in this passage. The point that Paul is making is that God alone is able to save the Corinthians. The Corinthians are not able to save the Corinthians. And if that applied to the Corinthians, it also applies to us. Likewise, God is actively revealing the so-called wisdom of man as folly. In, in this verse, he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Uh, oftentimes, we create these theories of God or thoughts of God in which God is this kind of love bubble He's like the divine red heart, you know, the, that iconic heart image. And, and he's just all accepting and all reconciling. Yes, indeed, God is full of mercy, and yet he resists the proud. And he destroys the wisdom of the wise. And he destroys the discernment, so-called discernment, of the discerning. Paul takes up this sort of language that God uses to tell Isaiah, the Israelites think they're wise, but I'm going to show them they're building on a house of sand. And then Paul takes that same language and then again applies it to the Corinthian time. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Many times we read this verse and we think, okay, well then Christianity does not need eloquent or reasonable positions or demonstrations or argumentation. It doesn't need a defense. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about those who are trusting in the wisdom of their aeon or their time. The philosophy and culture of the Roman world, he's saying, where is the debater of this time who can reason against the gospel? 
It's not to say that we can't use persuasive speech or reasoning in our defense of the gospel. In fact, every sermon you've ever heard is either a rational or emotional appeal with language to understand what God's word is saying. That's what sermons are supposed to be. So Paul is not throwing out the very technique he uses for the rest of all of his letters, but he's saying, who is the one who reasons according to the reason of this age or this, this culture? He, he's saying that they have no power. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul's doing what is called equivocation. He's using the same term or the same word, and he's then flipping it. He's going, he's dancing back and forth between how he's using it. For example, he says, for sense in the wisdom of God, that wisdom is talking about the divine wisdom. And then the next use, the world did not know God through wisdom. There he's talking about the wisdom that accords with God's wisdom. It's the, the way of thinking that matches God's thinking. And then he goes on to say, God, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. Is Paul calling the cross folly in God's estimation of folly? No, he's calling the cross folly in man's estimation of folly. So he's, he's moving back and forth. He's doing a dance between these two uses of wisdom, folly, and knowledge to show that, that God's ways and man's ways are forever divorced. They cannot be reconciled by man's attempt to reason his way to God. Paul's equivocating, and he, real, he reveals the impossibility of recognizing or reconciling rather human so-called wisdom or human rationality, human rationalism to the wisdom of the divine. That is to say, God's knowledge and God's ways, God's wisdom are higher than, and because of who God is, they are what is truth. That is to say, truth is that which corresponds to the mind and heart of God. Whether or not this carpet is red is not based on something you or I can distinguish. It is based on what God defines as red. And indeed, that's an, a human example. Red is just a spectrum. But the, the point is that God is the source and arbiter of truth. And because God is the source and arbiter of truth, men who attempt to become the source of truth have ultimately truncated their ability to reason their way to God. And it's just, it's important to understand that all men try to be their own source of truth. This is what the gospel is. It's a presentation that men cannot come to God on their own. Though God is the source and arbiter of truth, because man's reasoning is flawed, he cannot apprehend God's wisdom. Uh, I, I want you to imagine God's wisdom as kind of a, a bubble here. And then beneath that bubble, separated by an impossible distance, is man's wisdom. And men, through their rationality, have attempted to, over time, they have, have attempted to create schemes of self-improvement. They've attempted to create schemes of man-made and man-directed law. They've attempted to create economies and systems of society. You, you, you think just very briefly of the history of the world, and every system that man has come up with has been only, not only foolish, but also destructive and pernicious. It's been manipulative. You think of the caste system of India and how it kept those people in generations for hundreds of years of poverty and slavery. You think of the Confucian order of society, and there were these permanent slaves 
and there were these permanent masters. Likewise, with the Egyptians, every society that has ever existed in the world that has not been built on the wisdom of God has turned into a foolish scheme, a scheme built on man's wisdom, but ultimately it, it's revealed as tyranny. And so what Paul's talking about is he's, he's attacking the so-called wisdom of his age and showing how the gospel is diametrically opposed to the, the uh, mystical spirituality of the Jews and the over-rationalism of the, the Gentiles, or as Paul uses, Greeks. For man to be reconciled to God, God's wisdom must be revealed, and Paul says that he reveals it, God reveals it, through preaching. I, I want you to, to see this because as we're moving as a church into a time of evangelism, many of you have not seen great amounts of fruit, and you have not been engaged in preaching for a long season, and you're beginning to be engaged in it. And my fear is that you may be tempted to think the results should be more clear and faster and more powerful, but I, I just want you to understand what Paul's saying is the means by which God reveals wisdom, he does it through preaching. I want to just go back in verse 21. He says, for, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, and then here it is, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Preaching is the putting forth of the wisdom of God. That is what preaching should be. If you go on YouTube, if you go to various churches around the world, you can see terrible examples of what preaching shouldn't be. But what Paul is saying is that there is a wisdom of God that is being disclosed through what he, and by he I mean we, what Paul and his apostolic team are preaching. They are preaching the gospel. They are not promoting themselves. They are not advocating their culture. They are preaching the gospel itself. So understanding that this is the way that God saves men, Paul then continues and he declares that both the Jews and the Greeks are both unable and unwilling to come to God because the gospel cannot be reconciled with their system of value. That is, the Jews are, are asking for powerful signs and demonstrations. They're asking for manifold wisdom to be incarnated, and ironically, it was. The Greeks, they're asking for a system of teaching, a system of wisdom, a system of putting forth knowledge in ordered and rational ways. And yet, as we're going to see, they're presented with the cross. And, and so both systems, whether you're looking for something spiritual or if you're looking for something rational, both systems that put a, put a value on those over and against God's way cannot be reconciled with God's wisdom. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And so immediately Paul is making a distinction. He's saying the Jews who want a sign, they, they didn't receive that sign. And the Greeks who want wisdom, they didn't receive that wisdom, though he was in the flesh. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. Do you see how at, at that last phrase, what Paul does is he says, the very power that the Jews wanted, Christ is that power. The very wisdom that the Greeks claim to want, Christ is that wisdom. And he's not just power or wisdom, he's the power of God and the wisdom of God. He is God's answer to the problem of sin 
and God's manifestation of his truth. In the eyes of both the Jew and Greek alike, Christ is insufficient because the cross is offensive. As Paul calls it, it's a stumbling block. It's a scandal. That, that's where we get that word from. It's, it's like something that this, this metaphor or this word picture that Paul's using, this stumbling block, it's like something that's placed on a path and is invisible, maybe a large boulder on a bike path. It's invisible and you cannot but help hit that rock. Though the resurrection was evidence, the Jews could not accept that evidence. That is to say, they, they valued power, they valued signs, and God did arguably the most amazing thing to ever happen in the history of the world, the resurrection of a man who was dead for three days. And not only just a temporary resuscitation to die again, he stayed alive forever, and yet the Jews, because of the hardness of heart and blindness of spirit, they cannot receive that sign. Likewise, the Greeks claim to want wisdom, and Jesus Christ himself declared of his, himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, even though Christ was manifested as truth, the Greeks would not receive it. They could not receive the truth because they didn't want to receive the truth. Interestingly, Paul then distinguishes between Jews and Greeks from those who are called. And when I saw this, it just reminded me of so much of Paul's writings. You think of the book of Ephesians, and how he, he talks about how God is through Christ's death on the cross, through his body, he tore down the dividing wall that separated Jew and Gentile, which was the ordinances within the commands. But, but Paul has this theology of the church or the theology of the body as a group of people who've now been divorced from or, or ripped out of their ethnicity. Now, when I say that, I mean we're not claiming that Christ erases all differences. When Paul says that there's neither male nor female, it doesn't mean that we stop being men and you all, you ladies, stop being women. He's saying that the difference does not matter. We saw this again last week as we baptized both baby, you know, babies and uh, adults who were repenting, and we baptized uh, men and we baptized women because the ordinance, the seal of God's covenant has been applied to both. Prior, it was applied to men alone, and there were also other provisions that applied to them. Nevertheless, what, what Paul is saying is that these were Jews and these were Greeks, and then he uses this phrase, those who are called. And, and he, doesn't he then goes on to say both Jews and Greeks, but he first calls them as not whether they came from Judaism or whether they came from, from being a Greek or being you know, a, a, a Gentile. He, he then identifies them now by the thing which marks them, which is their calling and their election. I just want to go back and look at this. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. Verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. I think that's very interesting. Paul then tells how the cross of Christ has ended these two great ideologies. Remember, these are the major uh, religions of his day. These are the major forces at work in his time. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Remember, the Jews want a sign, and the Greeks want wisdom. And then Paul says, the foolishness of God is wiser 
than men and the weakness of God. You see, one is demanding wisdom and one is demanding power. And Paul says God answered this with even his folly and his weakness. And when you think of what the cross is, it is that. When you think of it from the human approach, why should a Jewish man who died on a piece of wood who was nailed there by Romans have anything to do with me? 2,000 years separated by history, he didn't speak a language I knew. I've never traveled to that region. He's never had to deal with the, the sorts of problems of our modern time. How should his death have anything to do with what I'm putting my eternal hope in? And when you look at it from the human perspective, it is the folly of God. Remember when I said Paul's equivocating, he is using the word folly to kind of poke at his readers. He's saying, you, you, if you're tempted to think this is folly, it's actually the wisdom of God. And it is the real wisdom. And, and when we are confronted with God's wisdom versus our wisdom, it looks to the natural eye as folly but it is the only wise thing that's ever been done. Indeed, the cross of Christ is paradoxically the worst thing to ever happen. A city full of rebellious, wicked haters of God murdered God in the flesh and then put him in a tomb. And yet at the same time, it is the only good thing that's ever happened in the entire world. So, after demonstrating how the cross answers both the demands of Judaism and Greek humanism, Paul appeals to their own experience of the gospel. What's so beautiful is the way that God has unfolded his redemptive plan at the cross then begins like throwing a stone in a pond to ripple throughout time. The very same way that God saved the world through Jesus Christ, he also then uses in saving his saints. That is to say, the saints are reminders of the folly of the cross by the, the fact of who they, am, who they are and how they came into the gospel. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. So just at the onset, we have no PhDs in the room. I, I love that. And yet, according to what Paul is saying, if you are hearing what he's putting forth in these letters, you are the wisest people who've ever walked in the earth. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Again, no politicians in the room, no wielders of companies, although actually there are a few wielders of companies, but, but they're not very big companies, no offense. <laughs> they're very small. Not many were powerful. They, they didn't exercise authority in the government. Most of these Corinthian believers were not yet, uh, you know, it, the gospel begins to work like leaven through all of society. But at this point, not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Again, one of the great pleasures of the United States is that we don't put titles on people. It, it's unfortunate that our democracy is, our, our democratic republic is dwindling into nothing as we watch it, but uh, my wife and I have this love-hate relationship of, of British shows, and I, I uh, acquiesced to watching a show the other day about the, the queen and her husband and, and all of these things, and I just, none of that reconciles with me as an American. I don't, I don't want a human king, because I know what human kings do. Nevertheless, uh, like I said last week, G.K. Chesterton, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others right? Um, what, what Paul's saying is not many of you had any sort of power. You didn't have any title. 
to, to claim. You couldn't say, well, you know, I'm the duchy of, you know, I don't know, Saxony or, or some. They, they weren't able to claim title. These are, these are people who God has chosen to save, and they weren't mighty in the eyes of men. What, what Paul's doing is he's saying the way that God demonstrated his wisdom through Christ has now been redone in the salvation of these Corinthian believers. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. See how he's using that dichotomy still of the Jews and the Greeks, what they want, power and wisdom. He's saying that God is choosing the weak things in order to shame them. He's, he's revealing what sin desires. Sin desires power. Sin desires man-made wisdom. And yet what God's doing through the testimony of, of ordinary saints, common folk Christians, is demonstrating the folly of the world. This is one of the greatest verses, especially in our age when Christians are surrounded by so many others who we, in our own eyes, begin to believe are more powerful or more popular or, or have more authority in the world. We have to remember what we've been saved into. We've been saved into a religion that is, by definition, of the world's standards, folly and foolishness. We, we ought not to become jealous of those around us in the world today. And, and so many Christians, they let their heart be subtly tempted by the power of the world, and yet Paul's calling them back to remember where they came from. How beautiful is God's work? What he did through the cross, he's now doing again through the lives of each and every individual Corinthian believer. And just as God saved Paul so that that would be a demonstration to all of the sinners in the earth, God also is doing that th through the Corinthians. You are, if you are in Christ, you are a walking miracle of the power and wisdom of God made manifest, not because of your own choosing, but because of his sovereign election and his apprehending of you and applying his grace to you. At first, Paul's comments could be seen as insulting, but his words absolutely ring true if you think about it. I just gave us a few uh, you know, just facts of the makeup of our body now. But even if there were politicians among us, or even if there were heads of companies or heads of states or county governors, you know, state governors or county administrators, even if that was the case, so what? They were appointed by men and they can be unappointed by men. What, what Paul's doing is he's showing that all the wisdom, all of the value system of the world, it dwindles to nothing. One of the great songs that I love to sing here at the church talks about the fact that on that day that Christ returns, the wisdom of men will be revealed as just sand sifting through a sieve, it falling, tumbling into nothing because we are all, as the prophets tell us, we're like grass that is cut and then fades, blows away. All flesh is like a vapor. We're here today and gone tomorrow. We don't live for a long time. And yet so much of our entire world is putting value on what other men think, not knowing that those men are destined to perish. So if Paul's comments seem insulting to you, that sting actually reveals a subtle pride. I want to just reread these very briefly. For consider your calling. Where were you when God called you? Not many of you were powerful or wise according to worldly standards. He doesn't say not any, but not many. Not many were of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world. So he's, he's calling you and I mean. 
not mean as in uh, not friendly, but mean as in common, base, if you will. God chose elemental people, people of the earth, so to speak, and he chose them willingly. This sting, if felt, reveals a subtle pride which can be at work in us from time to time. Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. You see how Paul's doing this? He's saying what God said to, to Isaiah for the people of Israel at that time, he's re-saying it to the culture of that day. He's taking what is so-called wise and bringing it to nothing, and the things which are nothing, he's reaching into the ashes of humanity and pulling up gemstones. He's creating beautiful creatures, beautiful new image bearers, not only of their maker, but image bearers of their redeemer. And he's bringing them up from dirt and he's going to glorify them. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God or in the sight of God, in the, in the evaluation of God. Paul's words remind us that once again, our redeemer is our creator. That is, these words, this bringing out of nothing, it reminds us of what God did in creation. He called forth light out of nothing, and there was light. And that is the exact same way. The very creator God is also our redeemer and our maker God. Paul then summarizes how the gospel became effectual for the Corinthians. He says that God caused them to receive the wisdom of Christ. If somebody could uh, go get the kids, we're going to end a lot earlier than we normally do, so I just want them to be ready for communion. Paul then summarizes how the gospel became effectual for the Corinthians. God is the one who is causing them to apprehend Christ or to be brought in to Christ. Verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. I, I want you to think about this. It's not because of me. It's not because of great preaching even though earlier Paul said it's through that preaching. It's not because of anything that we could accomplish, but rather, as Paul summarizes, because the grace comes from God, because the energy comes from God, because all of that effort is ultimately the Holy Spirit's empowering, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Remember, earlier in the chapter, for those who are perishing, Christ is what folly. And then, because of God, because of what God did, Christ became to us. It, it's not as if God transformed Christ from folly to wisdom, but in our estimation, God causes us now to be able to esteem Christ as wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. At first, the cross means nothing to me. It's foolishness. And then through the mighty act of the sovereign God transforming me into a new creation, I then begin to see that Christ is precious. Christ is infinitely valuable. He's infinitely desirable. He's excellent in all of his ways and works and things. Everything about Jesus Christ is infinitely desirable and admirable and to be emulated. And that is what Paul is saying. Christ is now wisdom and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Verse 31, so that is, it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So essentially, what Paul is saying is that the gospel, if it's to be received at all, can only be received in humility, because the gospel requires us to renounce our man-made wisdom. It requires us, at the very beginning of our walk with Christ, to renounce, as we heard in the baptisms, to renounce not only Satan, that's oftentimes our focus today, but the ways of the world. 
and the evaluation system of the world. So, it must be received humbly if it's to be received at all. And while requiring that I renounce pride, the pride which would establish its own righteousness or the pride which would hold on to its own reasoning, while it requires that I renounce pride, the gospel simultaneously delivers me from a crushing burden, which is this, that I have to be wise enough to save myself. That is what the gospel announces. It's, I'm not only unable, I'm also unwilling. But even if I was willing, I have no power. I could never be smart enough. I could never have it all together enough in order to be saved, to be desirable by God. I, as a sinner, cannot apprehend God's wisdom because I don't want it. That's what the gospel does. And, and, and when it announces, when, when the gospel announces the sin of man, it simultaneously then directs that man to look to the cross of Christ as the answer for that sin. And in doing, it delivers me from the crushing burden of having it all together or being wise in my own sight. Think about, think about this. If you've ever screwed anything up in life, earlier today, I forgot to check my battery on my guitar. I had to change it in the middle of service. That's folly in the, in the eyes of the world. It's a mistake. And now, now, that had a very small, you know, consequence. It was a temporary disruption in a service. Now, now think about the weight of your eternal destiny and being right with God. Whether or not you could have it together enough through life to base your trust upon your own wisdom. That's what the gospel delivers me from. Instead, by the gospel, by God's grace alone, I can freely admit both my own inadequacy and my inability. I'm, I'm not able to do the task, and I'm not, I don't even want to do the task. That apart from God's grace, all while knowing that by the cross, I can be forgiven. That is what the gospel announces to me. Now, by God's grace alone, Christ is mine. That's what God puts forth in the gospel. God is putting forth Christ to reconcile the world to him. So I just want to commend Christ to you. I, I know that many of you, you, you have heard the gospel so often, and yet, even as a Christian, even after coming to Christ, we can revert to a former way of life, a former manner of thinking. And that reversion is, after being started in Christ, I then start to rest on my own wisdom or my own effort. And while I ought to exercise responsibility and try to become mature for practical reasons and so that the gospel would not bear scorn in society, ultimately, I don't have to have it all together. And really, it's actually the case that until I get to the place where I can admit to God that I don't have it together, that I can ever be someone who actually receives the grace of God. Unless I'm willing to simultaneously say, I have a great need, I cannot also hear God's answer of, here is Christ. So let's close. Father, we thank you for what you've put forth in the gospel. We thank you that the gospel is not just deliverance from hell, but it is a reconciliation with an eternal God who sent his son to come and to bear flesh and to pay a penalty he didn't deserve and to purchase for you a people. Lord, we thank you that you've brought us into that people. We pray that the errors and dangers of the Corinthian church would not also infect our church, that we would never come to the place where we begin to rest in our own effort or rest upon our own wisdom, 
But Lord, we do thank you for the mighty power of the gospel, that it is wisdom from God and power from God. We pray, Lord, that you would show us Christ. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.